This is Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we will talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We'll talk about relationships in politics, social media and film, public speaking, and private talk. In this podcast, we will offer straightforward but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. In this episode, I talk with Morgan Johnson. Morgan is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Colorado State University. She researches discourses of racial injustice in the United States, with much of her work focusing on police violence. She is currently examining rhetorics of personhood and citizenship in policing oversight initiatives that followed the 2014 Ferguson unrest, including crowdsourced media databases, federal task force, civilian review boards, nonprofit organizations, and the mothers of the movement. Hey, Morgan, it's really great to have you with us today. I appreciate you taking time out of what is surely a busy time of the semester. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do at Colorado State University? Yeah, it's great to be here. Of course, I teach about rhetoric, race, and the relationship between the two for the Department of Communication Studies. Currently on my docket are the history and theory of rhetoric for undergraduate and graduate students. And in the spring, I will be offering race and communications in the United States as a 300 level course, which I shamelessly pitch to any undergraduates listening right now. Additionally, I research the language surrounding racialized violence in the United States, focusing primarily on policing. Great, thanks. Super excited for for the class in the spring and, and thrilled to have you doing the, the history and theory of rhetoric right now. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about this research you've been doing. You've been writing about the way citizens have responded to, to state-sanctioned violence against people of color. What are some of the things that you've learned about how citizens have responded in the context of the killing of Michael Brown and the protests that followed in Ferguson? Yeah, I think the thing that I hold closest is really just how dedicated, resilient, and persistent people are, particularly against intense pushback. So as you mentioned, one group I've looked at closely is the media, which is an illuminating example because probably most known is the databases of the Washington Post and the Guardian, Fatal Force and accounted um, respectively. But those are both based on the work of an individual journalist in Reno, Nevada named Brian Burkhart, who spent years collecting this data on his own and with teams of internet crowdsourcers. And so that database set the foundation for the Washington Post and the Guardian, which has become the foundation for national federal attempts at collecting this data. And so we can really see the ways that groups are working individually, collectively, and even these large organizations toward the issue of police accountability. I've also looked at civilian review boards in cities that have had review boards instated or enhanced by consent decree. And talking to board members of the Baltimore Review Board, for example, they've really been dealing with power struggles in the past few years. While civilian review boards are supposed to be mechanisms of accountability, I think especially when federally decreed self-accountability in some ways, there are all kinds of government tensions that play out federally, locally. So the board really spends as much time fighting for the authority to be a meaningful entity as it does doing the kind of meaningful work that it does. 
And then I think the mothers of the movement individually and as a group are another amazing example of people who are responding really diversely and powerfully um, in doing legislation, in organizing, but also in doing memory work so that we don't forget those who have been lost or forget the kinds of sacrifices that people have made for them. Great. That's that's a super helpful way of thinking about the work that citizens are doing in, in such a wide variety of ways. Thank you for touching as well on the memory work, which connects us back a little bit to our previous podcast. So you've been writing about this work that can happen following the 2014. Obviously, here we are in 2020, and, and we continue to have the state sanctioned violence and, and the appropriate protests against that violence. As you survey the kind of post-Ferguson landscape, how, if at all, have our conversations about race, the citizens' responsibility in terms of systemic racism, how how have they changed or or stayed the same? You know, this is such a hard question. In some ways, I think it's changed quite a bit. Quite literally, my research trajectory is inspired by the life and death of Michael Brown. My program of research, my ethical commitments were born out of my experience of the Ferguson protests in 2014. And today we are two weeks out from the anniversary of the grand jury announcement. And back then, we only dreamed that defunding police departments could be part of mainstream discourse. On the other hand, my optimism is you know, perpetually tempered by the material fact of continued executions. Alongside conversations of divestment has been a resurgence in law and order rhetoric on the right and language of reform on the left. The current administration's police reform initiatives have largely been framed around law, order, and the support of law enforcement officers, which is not not a response to communities pleas for reduced policing and accountable police. And thus far, the new administration and even those further to the left, like Bernie Sanders, have largely challenged that position with pretty tepid discussion of reform. So it's a mixed bag, but I am reassured by the felt presence of those who are tirelessly pushing the conversation forward. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is that some some things that were kind of way outside of mainstream discourse in 2014 have, have at least gained some traction in terms of things that many of us talk about, but but haven't really entered into institutional discourse. Have I kind of got that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think Minneapolis is a great example of whether or not there is transformation in their justice system and their police departments. The fact that they had public deliberation about it, the fact that this is something that the community is really engaged over, I think is rather unpredictable from the perspective of 2014. I want to pivot a little bit. Super important conversation. These things show up. The racism, their concerns about policing show up in in higher education and in high schools, grade schools. You at Penn State, where you're finishing your graduate work, you did some really important work with mentoring of students of color. And I wonder if you could talk with us a little bit about that mentoring, especially in the context of the ongoing conflicts over race and state sanctioned violence in the U.S. Yeah, the Graduate Alliance for Diversity and Inclusion, we always 
scuffed about whether it was gaddy or gaudy. Um, <laughs> to be sure, I was just one of a small team of folks who worked to get this to fruition. But about a year into my PhD program, uh, after a series of personal experiences and hearing stories from incoming students, there was a clear need to me for students on our campus, community support, access to facilities, programming. And so talking to my advisor, he got the college involved. Uh, we convened a working group regularly for over a year and officially launched Gaddy in 2018. And with the support of the college, we were able to co-host speakers with other campus groups. We had reading groups. We were collating resources from different communities, both on campus and off campus offering mentorship opportunities for undergraduates of color, particularly undergraduates of color who were interested in graduate school. And right before I left, we were successful in getting a graduate assistantship funded so that a graduate student now gets paid for the labor of sustaining the organization, which is important. And really, Gaddy is thriving since I left Penn State. Um, I'm on the mailing list, so I can tell from newsletters that they are more engaged than ever in issues like the ones we're discussing. In fact, they've been organizing around local issues, particularly one stemming back to March 2019 in State College police officers responding to a mental health crisis killed 29-year-old Osazi Azagi. And he was a former student at Penn State, the son of professors, a very valuable member of the community. And the community is still fighting for the names of the officers to be released to the public, for an independent investigation, for community divestment from the police department. And from what I can tell, Gaddy has been really supporting local organizers in this, namely the 320 Coalition. That's a really wonderful example, uh, wonderful may be the wrong word, a powerful example of the ways in which mentoring students in the university connects us to our communities, our surrounding communities. Yeah. When you think about that, when you reflect on the program that, that you helped start and that continues actively there at Penn State, what are some of the keys for those of us listening to the podcast for successful student mentoring the students of color? Uh, it's not a flashy answer, but I think most importantly, just listen. Don't assume you know what folks want or need. When we were establishing Gaddy, it was clear to us that there were needs, but we didn't want to take for granted that the needs of the working committee were the needs of all of the underserved students on campus, in the college, or even in our departments. And so we held a series of town halls over a year's time, maybe more, just asking graduate students what they were missing from their campus community, what would make their time in graduate school more fulfilling, less taxing. And I think that that is part of the success that the organization has had is just really always being open to feedback and always wanting to be supportive of the specific needs of members. Um, so I think always starting there, listening. Right. I really appreciate that. I find myself wanting to, to move directly to a solution without necessarily even knowing exactly what, what's at issue. And, and it feels like listening is an important part for me, for sure. Yeah, I think that's common for all of us. When, when someone has a need, we just want to, as quickly as we can, be able to fulfill it to solve the problem. Right. As we as we wrap up our conversation, Morgan, and we think about the ways in which the two parts of our conversation have kind of intertwined this work that you're doing on the public response to police violence and then this 
perhaps a little bit more intimate work on the mentoring in the university. What are some things that students, faculty, scholars, citizens navigating the U.S. public culture, what, what are one or two fundamental things we can think about to combat systemic racism in our context to, to make life maybe just a bit, bit more humane? Something I keep thinking about from episode four is when Katie Noblock said stay in learning mode. And so I would kind of piggyback off of that to say to keep learning and to keep unlearning. I think for us in the academy, we consider ourselves kind of professional learners, but it's just as easy to forget that learning can be a luxury and unlearning is a responsibility. This spring and summer, we saw a wave of people ordering books about anti-Blackness by Black people from Black-owned businesses. And sure, there were people who never picked those books up from the store or never cracked them open once they did. Sure, there is earned cynicism in the DEI workshop circuit, but I really don't believe that progress can come without knowledge. And I mean that richly, not just reading academic books or attending professional development, but we can learn so much by listening to people in our daily lives. And there are a lot of people who have been talking for a long time and who want to be heard. So I would say that's definitely one. And relatedly, in doing our homework, we find that there are community leaders aplenty. So getting involved in our communities and finding those who are already doing the work and letting them take the lead, learning to support. But honestly, there's one most important thing that I've been thinking about, particularly as the election came to pass, and that's just keep thinking about it. Don't forget what it's like to not be able to look away. Don't pretend that the traumas of the Trump presidency have been an aberration. Definitely exhale, definitely rest, but please don't stop. Oh, th those are super powerful. I'm, I'm finding myself as I am every week when I uh, work on this podcast, moved by, by your words and your, your commitment. I love that idea of learning and unlearning. Uh, and I know in my own life that those two things are, are twined together learning new stuff, listening listening to new voices, and then unlearning many things that I've I've been taught over the years. Uh, Morgan, I really, really appreciate you taking time to, to share with us, to have this conversation with me and with our audiences. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Speaking Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies and the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. Carol Bush as the producer and the podcast is recorded and engineered at the studios of KCSU at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. Until next time, be well.